we all want to move past our past. Right? It's the last week of the year, and so a lot of us are glad to get into a new year because we're frustrated with 2018, and there's some of us here in this room that had a great last year, and we're eager to get into this next year so that we get more of the same. Right? That a new year comes with new hope. I once heard hope defined as this. Hope is this. The feeling that the feeling you have isn't permanent. A new year is new hope. New dreams, a fresh start, a new diet, new system to take care of the goals that you want to have, new opportunities. You and I want to move past our past. But one of the things that you know as well as I do um, is that it's hard to move past your past. You know, you heard that phrase, time heals all wounds? That's a lie. Time often moves on, but you and I don't. Time really doesn't heal anything. Time can pass, but it doesn't mean that you and I progress. Here's what our past can do. Our past can hold us back, or our past can pull us back. Yeah, our past can make us feel stuck, or our past can suck us back into our past. Here's what I mean by our past can make us feel stuck. Uh, Charles Dickens, in his book, Great Expectations, uh, writes this story. And in this story, there's this lady, Miss Havisham. At 8.40 a.m. on her wedding day, she gets a letter that her fiancé bailed on her. And so what she does at that point, she stops all the clocks in her house. She only has on one shoe at the time. So she keeps that one shoe on. And she sits in her dress in a house with all of the clocks stopped for years as her mansion rots away. She even adopts a girl and refuses to let her marry so that she could get back at men. It seems like a hyperbole, right? It seems outrageous that somebody would do that. And it seems silly, but it's descriptive. He writes it that way to make a point, And that point is, you know somebody like that. Maybe you are somebody like that. That because of the frustration of your past, you want to hold on to fairness. And you have figured out this truth that, look, unforgiveness is actually one of the most fair things to do. Somebody does me wrong, I give them what they deserve, and what they deserve is not my forgiveness. And you hold on to it, and and you feel bitter and frustrated, and your present is very shaped by a single event or a series of events that... Things took place in the past and that bitterness and the frustration is like this. It's like scratching a a wound. It may provide temporary relief, but it leaves lasting scars. There's some of us in here that are stuck in our pasts. And we know that we need to get out, but it's hard and it feels impossible to get unstuck. But then there's some of us in here that we're not stuck in our past. We ignore our past, or we think that we do. We think that we can just move past 
the people that have hurt us, the folks that have done us wrong, and we assume that it's okay because as long as they're not in the picture, life seems to be good. But what you find out about past wrong and past pain, or past pain is like a dog with a good nose that you don't want anymore, and you drive a long way off and drop them off, and you come back home and you find them waiting at your front doorstep. Have you ever thought, I've moved on from the hurt that they caused me a long time ago? And you don't see that person for years, but then the moment that you see them, all that stuff comes back up? Or maybe you never see them again, but when somebody does something that reminds you of them, you have a short fuse. And you make innocent people pay for some wrongs that they've done. So you may be in here and you may make all men pay because of what your father had done. You may be in here and you may make all white people pay for what some racist has done or all black people pay for what somebody else has done. It's easy to think that we ignore our past, but you can't get past it. So whether it's active, something that you've done that you want to forget about or move past, or passive, something that's been done to you. All of us have to deal with our past. We have to move past our past, the past wrongs. And here's what I want you to see. Here's the answer. Here's the way to solve it. Right? Five minutes in, here's the answer. When it comes to failures, forgiveness is the way that you move past your past. Forgiveness is the only way that you can move forward. And you say, well, John, why would you give us the answer five minutes in. Because just because you know that something works doesn't mean that you know how it works. We know that we should forgive, but it's hard. So I want to spend our time looking at the life of a man that moved past his past. That man is Joseph. If you would turn with me to Genesis chapter 45, and I'm just going to catch you up to speed on his life. Joseph's upbringing could have took place in 2018. Joseph uh, had a dad who had 13 different kids by four different women, and they all lived on the same street. <laughs> Joseph was his dad's favorite child. Joseph, one day, is sent by his dad to check on his brothers, and his brothers are frustrated, and they want to kill him. But instead, one of his brothers, Judah, which means to praise or the praised one, says, hey, I've got a better idea. Let's not kill him. Let's make a killing off of him. They sold him into slavery, and in an instant, at 16 years old, he loses everything. His mother, his father, his language, familiar food, smells, culture, hopes, and dreams. You think that you had a bad year? He had a bad 13 in a row. And none of it was his fault. So he gets sold into slavery. He's faithful. He does what he should do. Genesis chapter 39, he's wrongly imprisoned and thrown in jail. So do you know what he does? He's faithful and he does what he should do until he meets these two guys one day and this one guy has a dream that he doesn't know what it means. Joseph tells him what the dream means and when the guy goes out and gets the favor of the king, Joseph's one request is, remember your boy. I did that. I told you what that dream. Remember me. And do you know what that guy does as soon as he gets out? 
he forgets about Joseph for two years. So he's sitting in jail, and then all of a sudden, in one day, here's what God does, right? God can do this. In one day, Joseph goes from the bottom of the prison to the top of a kingdom. And more than that, the people that sold him into slavery come back and they need something from him. He's in a position of power. Back then, his brothers didn't want him. Now he's hot. Right? All on him. Genesis 45, verse 3, it says this, Joseph said to his brothers, I am Joseph. Is my father still living? But they could not answer him because they were terrified in his presence. You've been on the receiving end of this, right? When you know you've done somebody wrong and then you need something from them. If you haven't been on the receiving end of this, you've daydreamed about doing this to somebody, right? I can't wait. Yeah, uh, they made me mad, but they're going to need something from me. And when they need something from me, then his next words are terrifying, y'all. Right? Yo, yo, was it terror when my parents said it to me when I knew I was in trouble and I found myself repeating it to my kids or my kid? Look at verse 4. Then Joseph said to his brothers, Come here. And they came near. I am Joseph, your brother, he said, the one you sold into Egypt. But the rest of his words here are not meant for intimidation. They're an invitation into closeness and relationship. He moved past his past into forgiveness, and the question is, how? The way that we move past our past is we have to remember two things. Here are the two things. You have to remember your part in God's story, or you have to remember, sorry, God's part in your story and your place in His. You have to remember God's part in your story and your place in His. God's part, let's read here in verse 5, He says this, And now, don't be grieved or angry with yourselves for selling me here, because God sent me ahead of you to preserve life. For the famine had been in the land these two years, and there will be five more years without plowing or harvesting. God sent me ahead of you to establish you as a remnant within the land and to keep you alive by a great deliverance. Therefore, it was not you who sent me here, but God. He has made me a Pharaoh to father. He has made me a father to Pharaoh, Lord of his entire household, and ruler over all the land of. Egypt. Did you see what he did there? Listen, first thing, Joseph is rehearsing his story. He's rehearsing a very real past offense with words like, no, you sold me. He's not glossing it over. He's not saying, it's okay, it's all good, it's no big deal, look where I'm at now. He is rehearsing it and saying, no, no, listen, listen, you, you sold me. You did me wrong. There is nothing godly about discounting offenses. There's some of us in here that have had very real wrongs done to us. And we can't just act like they didn't take place. Joseph doesn't. But look at what he does do. He takes a little creative 
license. And he says, you sold me, but he inserts God into it. He remembers God's part in his story. What, what he says is, no, no, God sent me, verse 5. God had foresight. God sent me ahead of you because he knew that you would be here. God sent me. He inserts God's compassion. God sent me here to take care of you. And as a result of rehearsing the offense, but adding God into it, as he talks about the offense, it's not meant to create an extra burden on his offender it's actually meant to relieve the offender. You see verse 5? Don't be angry. Don't be distressed. What he did, Joseph went through his oppression, came out with power, and he wasn't transformed into a bully. That's a miracle. For an oppressed person to raise up and to be seated in a position of power and not want revenge but seek to relieve the very people that offended him. And why was he able to do that? Because he remembered God's part in his story. He remembered that all of life's events have been sifted through the hands of God. Even the worst ones. Especially the worst ones. It's a thing that we call sovereignty psalms 115 says this god sits in the heavens and he does whatever he pleases what this means is that the god of the bible there is a god who sits and is the divine authorizer of everything that's going on in your life he's not the author of evil because god is is good but he has allowed evil things to take place. Hear me. That's a hard truth. It's hard. Well, listen, it's a hard truth. Those two things go together. Sometimes when statements like that are hard, we think it's so hard. I don't want to think of a God that let that person do this to me, and it's so hard that we come to the conclusion that it can't be true. Because we think that all the things that are true about God shouldn't be hard to grasp. But this is a hard truth. But there's comfort in it, and here's that. Right? We can't go into all of what it means for God to be sovereign, but we can start to wrestle with this truth, and that's this. God is the divine authorizer of everything that has gone on. And you would say, John, that's a hard truth. I don't want to believe it. Let me tell you, the alternative is no better. Either someone is in complete control or no one is. And listen, if you want to believe that no one is in control, that's a frightening reality because, look, there is absolutely no guarantee that everything's going to work out at the end. The only guarantee you have, if nobody is in complete control, is that there is absolutely no purpose to any of the pain that you have ever gone through. It's all purposeless, meaningless. Is that what you want?
You know, this is why we love stories and fiction. This is why on our breaks, we binge on Netflix show, right? Watch a whole season in a day. Because you start off, you see the conflict and you see the pain. And you're like, I've got to make it to the end. I want to see how it all plays out because you and I have this thing on the inside that says there has to be a purpose to all the hard things that we go through. And every human that has ever existed in the history of the world has that inside of them. And I want you to know that's not a coincidence. It's by design. God is in control. And here's the most comforting part about that. The most comforting part about that is this. When it comes to the people that are determining your destiny and writing your story, your oppressors don't put the period at the end of any sentence. God is the one writing your story. We take comfort in the fact that the person that's determining my destiny doesn't hate me, but he loves me. This universal love that God has for creation is given to everybody. So even if you would say, John, I'm not a Christian, I don't write with the Bible. Even if you would say, John, I believe that there's a God out there, but I hate the stuff that he let me go through. I want you to know that that God loves you. As seen by the way that you're breathing right now, not because of anything that you've done. The sun rose, not because of anything that you've done. Rain has fallen this past week. The Bible goes on and on and on to talk about the way that God cares for us to show us His love, your story. However bad is being written by somebody that's very, very good. And so what that means for us, y'all, is we have to rewrite the past as if God is actually involved in it. Church, we can't keep telling our story as if the people that have done us wrong, as if the mistakes that we've made are the main determiners of where we'll end up. There was a show... Family Matters that used to come on the air. Y'all remember that show? Right? It was, you know, a middle class Chicago and black family, uh, Carl and Harriet Winslow, right? Listen, and when the show first started, they had three kids Eddie, Laura, and Judy. In the fourth season, Judy disappeared, right? Here's what one. <laughs> No, no, listen, listen, listen. Yo, yo, the words will be here on the screen. Here's what one site says about Judy. When the series began, Judy was nine years old. In the series' fourth season, her character simply disappeared at the age of 13 with no explanation as to why. As the show started revolving more around Steve Urkel, the producers of the show thought that Judy was unneeded and she was more of a background character who was given very few lines. After she disappeared in the episode Mama's Wedding, the cast of the show acted as if she never existed. And Harriet and Carl acted as if they only had two kids, Eddie and Laura. And this last line was funny. Judy was last seen walking up the stairs at home. (laughs) Listen, 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 y'all. You watch that show, and it is hilarious. How in the fifth season on, they recount things that took place in in the past. 
and they just do not talk about their third child that vanished. The reason why I bring that up is that um, if someone heard you talk about 2018 and you were describing the events that took place and the main characters at play and they were going to write a paragraph like this and they were to end off and say, uh, God was last seen where? Where would they put? As you talk about your past, as you talk about the hurt, the pain, the angst, where's God? Have you acted like He was a background character that wasn't important to your story? Or do you remember God's part in your story? Church, you've got to tell your story as if God is the one writing and not your offenders and not your oppressors. We give too much credit to the devil and people that have been devilish to us and discount the fact that God Himself is writing your story. However bad it may seem right now, it's being written by someone very, very good. The first thing that we have to do to move past our past is we have to remember God's part in our story, but two, we have to remember your place in His story. Let's look back at 5 through 8. It says this. And now, don't be grieved or angry with yourselves for selling me here, because God sent me ahead of you to preserve life. For the famine has been in the land these two years, and there will be five more years without plowing or harvesting. God sent me ahead of you to establish you as a remnant within the land and to keep you alive by a great deliverance. Therefore, it was not you who sent me here, but God. Look, He has made me a father to Pharaoh, Lord of his entire household and ruler over all of Egypt. At face value, it seems like what he's saying is, hey y'all, it's all good. Y'all sold me and I was at the bottom, but God promoted me to the top. And I want you to know if you stop there, then you miss the point of this whole story. He does talk about the promotion that he got. He does talk about the position of status and prominence that he was brought to, right? With words like, yo, God sent me to preserve your life, to establish a remnant, to keep you alive. God has really put me as second in charge. He's talking about his advancements, his achievements, his promotions. But listen, he doesn't talk about any of those things as an end in themselves. All of those things are a means to an end. Look, his status that he gets is not the reward of his faithfulness. It's not meant to give him this sense of superiority over and against the people that did him wrong. Y'all did me wrong? Well, look at what God did for me. It's a result of God's faithfulness and any status that he has is meant for service. He's saying, no, no, look, God's writing my story 
But the most important thing that I have to remember is my place in his story. God's not just writing a story about me. God's writing a story about him, and I'm involved in his story. So do you know what that does? It takes all the blessings, all the good things that God gives us, all the goals that we're setting for the next year, all the ways that we hope to move past our past so that we can be made whole. It takes those things and it puts it in its proper place, not on the top of the totem pole, but on the bottom, serving often the very people that have done us wrong. Joseph knows that he's the supporting, he is a supporting character in God's story. Now supporting doesn't mean he's unimportant. It doesn't mean he's insignificant. It just means that when it comes to the story that God's writing, he's not central. It's not about him. It's about God's plan for all humanity. So here's what takes place. In order to get what he's saying here, you have to know what takes place in the book of Genesis as a whole. When it comes to your Bible, your Bible is not 66 small stories compiled into one. Your Bible is one big story that's called a meta-narrative, right? So over 1,500 years, 40 people are writing these books. And God is going to use all of them to tell this one story. And Joseph knows his place in this story. This Bible starts off with a very good God that loves his kids, that provides them a world to dwell in before they did anything to earn his blessing. God places them in there. They disobey God, things go wrong, right? So from the jump, it says, oh, mankind's going to eat for the rest of his time by the sweat and the toil of his brow. So the generations to come are going to experience the effect of sin that came into the world that was not any fault of their own. But God promised one day, through this one family, I'm going to bring my son into the world to undo all of these wrongs. This family goes on and on and on. And then what you have is these 12 sons who experience a famine. Nothing wrong of their own. They didn't do anything wrong. The world that they lived in was just messed up. However, these 12 sons sell their brother into slavery, proving that even though their death to come wasn't their fault, they were wholly deserving of whatever punishment that they got. And this famine is threatening to wipe out this family and undo God's plan of restoring the world. And Joseph says, this story's not about me, it's about God. I'm a supporting character, so my role is just to help this thing move along. It's not about him, it's about God. And because it's about God, he knows that there's purpose in his pain, not just for his personal promotion and advancement, but for God's glory. And when you know this about the way that the world is set up, you start to play your part. It's easy for you to play your role. There's this show called Curb Your Enthusiasm on HBO. Nobody should, uh, this is not a, um, 
advertisement for you to go and watch it, right? This is just yeah, a little bit of background. Larry David, the creator of Seinfeld, made this show. And one of the unique things about this show, uh, if you watch it, is that all of the scenes seem very like, it seemed like folks don't know their lines, right? And that's because people don't know their lines. As he's writing out the, the script, he does not give anybody a script. He gives them an outline of what's going to take place, and everybody has to ad-lib their lines so that it feels more free. But here's what he, he does. To the characters, he does not give them a full script. He only gives them outlines for the roles that they're going to play in. So, say Larry does something bad and comes home and he tells his wife on the show the thing that he did. She has no clue what he did. All she has is her little outline of how she is supposed to act. So she doesn't have the full story. She just has what she needs to be faithful in the scene that she's in. I want you all to know that we are not the main character. We are not the one writing the script. We are supporting characters. We don't have the full story. We have all that we need to know to be faithful. There's a bigger picture that you can't presently see. So you say, John, what should I do when it seems like things are frustrating and they don't make sense? Here's one thing that you should do. Rather than try to sit down and figure out how it's all going to work out, here's what you can do. You can start to rehearse God's goodness in the past. You can edit your past story, put God in it. You can read God's Word and be reminded of the things that He's done and just give yourself a steady diet of the fact that even when things look like they're at their worst, God does good, God is good. And that steady stream of the providence of God, of the faithfulness of God, it offsets those sharp jolts of pain and frustration and surprise as they come into our lives. And what we do is we do what Joseph did. We realize that God's faithfulness often makes much more sense in the rearview mirror. It makes sense in hindsight. So we put God's name into our story that's been written so that as we see what He's done, we're reminded that He's good. God's great gift to us is not that He gives us foresight, but He gives us hindsight. And my one plea is that as God shows you His providence and His faithfulness, believe it. Believe that it's not coincidence. Believe that it's Him at work. Don't think it was your own ingenuity that helped you conquer the trauma from the past. Believe that it was God's grace. Think about where you are right now and don't look at your story and think about all the things that you did right to get you right here, but think about all the things that went terribly wrong to get you right here. Think about the failed relationships that kept you away from a place that you thought that you were going to go that brought you to the place where you have your closest friends and family. Think of the loss and the deep anxiety that you felt like kept you in your room, but it forced you to go down to your knees. 
And you may say, John, that is great. That's great advice. That's a nice story. I do want to look in hindsight. The problem is um, Joseph went from the prison floor to the palace. And now he's saying all of this from the comfort of a throne. John, I'm still presently on the prison floor. You may say, John, I don't have a hindsight to look at. Joseph had all of this glory, John, but I'm still gloryless. I would say, remember your place in God's story. Here's one thing that we have to account for as we remember our place in God's story, and that's this. God's work um, always outlives God's workers. So regardless of how much God helps and promotes and brings you up, one day you're going to go into the ground and God's work will go on. So you look at the life of Joseph, right? Verse 13 at the end of this, he's, he's like, yo, go tell my dad that thought I was dead about all of this glory. And then you turn to Exodus chapter 1, verse 6, 6 through 8, and it says this. Joseph and all his brothers and all that generation eventually died. And that's all we hear about Joseph. He's gone. But the Israelites were fruitful, increased, and multiplied, and became extremely numerous so that the land was filled with them. Verse 8, Ah, but a new king who didn't know about Joseph came to power in Egypt. And do you know what he did? He enslaved this family that God protected. And Joseph couldn't do anything about it. He's gone. But the main character of this story is still working. And so what God does is He comes in and the central event of the Old Testament is that God, in an instant, delivers His children from slavery in Egypt. But it takes God's... Ye God gets them out of Egypt in an instant but it takes God years to get Egypt out of them. Once they're set free from their external bondage, do you know what they see? The second half of Exodus is God saying, you have a bigger problem than the people that have done you wrong. And that's what's in here. God sets them free and then they spend the rest of their time trying to make themselves the main character of the story. And on and on, the human heart, this is what it does. Do you know what God does? The same thing that He always had. God sends His Son, Jesus, to go and check on His brothers. Jesus comes into the world to check on God's children. And do you know what? All of His brothers, like Joseph's brothers, are frustrated at Him. Judah, whose name means to praise, says to Joseph, or says to the group, hey, let's not kill him, let's just sell him for silver. Jesus comes down. Judas, which, whose, whose name means to praise, says, hey, let's sell him. He sells Jesus. But this Jesus goes, and you know, here's the beautiful thing. Before he's even sold by Judas, 
Jesus, in John chapter 13, willingly gets on his knees and makes himself a slave and a servant. He comes into this world to take care of us, to serve us, and to give us his life. Joseph was able to provide forgiveness to his brothers with the gift of hindsight. When Jesus is on the cross, there is no hindsight. There is somebody presently being done wrong, being killed and murdered by the very people that he came to help. And do you know what he says in the moment? Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. Jesus has a faith and does in foresight what you and I have had hindsight to do. God has been good to us and it's so hard for us to forgive people and to move past our past because we rehearse the offense over and over and over. Jesus on that cross is actively praying that God would forgive the very people that were actively doing him wrong. He didn't wait until the story was over. He was editing it as it went along. And listen to how good God is. He's praying for forgiveness on the front end, not for people who have been done wrong by somebody else, but for people that are getting ready to self-sabotage themselves. Man, I wish I had a couple of people in here that have self-sabotaged their lives. I, I wish I had just a few that really know what it's like to sit at the end of a year and to look back and to say there's so many ways that this thing could have gone wrong, not because of what anybody else did, but because of things that I did that nobody knew about. The things that I did that could have messed it all up, but in some strange way, God used that for His glory. Do you know what that would do? It would cause you to sit back, to remember your place in God's story, and to be grateful. It would cause you to look back on everybody that offended you and did very, very real wrongs and hurtful things. And it would cause you to, as you think about that past, to put God in that past and to be reminded that the one that's writing your story is not them, but it's God. God's proved His love, not just in creation, but in the way that He's redeemed us from sin and even redeemed the very sin in our lives to bring us to the place that we are now. And like Joseph, we would look to our very brothers that did us wrong and say, oh, how could I not forgive you? Am I in the place of God? And like Jesus, we'd be able to actively look at the people that are planning for our demise and say, oh, Father, forgive them. They're about to mess things up worse than they can imagine. But Lord, would you protect them from self-sabotage the way that you have protected me? That we look and we say, the most fair thing that I could give them is unforgiveness. And although it's fair, it hurts. It it hurts to stay mad. It hurts to stay bitter. And it's a hurt that keeps on hurting. But forgiveness, oh, it hurts. It hurts. It's unfair. 
unfair, it's unfair, it's unfair. But it heals. It heals. Jesus being unfairly treated on the cross in our place brings the forgiveness and acceptance that we long for. That frees you and I to be unfair in return. Forgiveness, y'all, is the only way to move forward. How do we do it? We have to remember God's part in our story. He's writing it, but there is purpose to everything painful. No suffering in your life is by accident or by chance. All of it is by God's divine appointment to bring a future that you can't imagine. But we have to remember our place in His story. And although there may be present discomfort, if we're on the right side of this thing, it'll lead to future glory. You'll say, well, John, you didn't really talk much about forgiveness and how I do it, I need people that I need to forgive and I just can't. What are the steps? And the reason why I brought all this up um, is, is because although forgiveness in itself is a work and it's a hard work, I think forgiveness is largely a byproduct of gratitude. And so what this means is that nobody forgives somebody by gritting their teeth and bearing it and saying, I've got to forgive, I've got to forgive, I've got to forgive, I've got to forgive. It just doesn't work like that. Do you know how forgiveness takes place? By you rehearsing the faithfulness of God. By you being reminded of the depths that God has gone to for you. And as you rehearse this and are grateful for it and think about the past, yes, and be honest about the past with the help of community and trusted counselors and people that can help you surface this very, very real pain as you put what God has done in Christ into it and that deep pain. When you start to burrow down beneath it and think about the depths of God's love, it provides a joy. And that joy is what enables us to forgive. Jesus went to the cross, a painful death for forgiveness, but the Bible says for the joy that was set before him. It was his extreme joy and delight to forgive us. And if we can remember God's part in our story and our place in his, it'll enable us to move into this next year without potentially needing to cut off anybody from this past year, but to cut off the bitterness, the frustration, and the anxiety of relationship with them that comes with unforgiveness. Forgiveness, y'all, is how we move forward. And God has provided a means for us to do it joyfully as we reflect on what His Son has done. Let's pray. Father, again, we come to Your Word, and we are overjoyed by the fact that you call us to do very, very hard things, but in the end, uh, we'll see that obedience to you 
uh, was not without a reward, without joy and freedom. I pray that you would help us to have that, Father. Would you help us to start each day and end each day with reminders of your faithfulness to us, Father? Would forgiveness be a foregone conclusion, a byproduct of a grateful heart? We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.